Please stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. I am also here this morning. That's funny. You know, we've been doing these video shares, and the danger of video is, of course, you have these tech glitches, which we had a couple weeks ago. I suppose the danger of in-person is, is... Oh, there he is! Seawag, get up here! <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Connor Wagner. We demand an explanation. Um, the wizard always arrives right when he should. <laughs> but I was late. Uh, <laughs> so um, I'll just say, we're in an Axios group together. And um, he's now kicked out of the group. Um, <laughs> but you know, as much as I can, I've wanted to pair these sharings with, obviously, the, the message. And sometimes that doesn't happen. But I think you'll see there's a, a great connection between what Connor's going to share and hopefully what um, I'm going to share. So with thank, that, thank I'll you, leave, it, leave with you. And my apologies. So um, yeah, so just get right into it. It's a blessing to be here today. Thank you for your patience and understanding. Um, so my background, I was not raised in a Christian home. I'll call myself sporadically Catholic at best, where we'd go for a little bit, then we wouldn't. Um, and after a misspent youth, I became a Christian in my late teens, early 20s. I've married, started a family, and have since been blessed with many children. Five years ago, we moved from here to Colorado. You may have remembered, um, you guys were kind enough to pray us off and away, and our hope was that, like many young families, we could find a new place with a high quality of life and a better cost of living. And uh, there was a new work opportunity for me there, and so we went away very hopeful, very prayerful that it would be a good situation. And so the reality was, Colorado was, in fact, beautiful. 
John Denver was right. Um, it is great, and even driving in this morning and seeing the snow on the mountains, it reminded my daughter and I of what it'd be like any time we would turn to the west and see the Rockies. So Colorado was great, but work was a nightmare. And I quickly found it was unpredictable, it was unproductive, it was unprofessional. Painful example would be a Saturday morning, we'd be up in the mountains on a hike, and I'd get a call. There was a presentation that needed to be done, and it needed to be done by Monday. That was being told Saturday morning. Why wasn't I told? Well, it was a toxic culture. It was, um, there was a lack of respect. Proverbs 29, 12 says, if a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. And that speaks both to the filtering mechanism of a toxic company where only bad people stay and also the corrupting, the corrupting aspect to it, where good people who stick around get conformed into the bad image of the company versus who they wanted to be. And so in terms of dealing with it, initially, okay, we're going to pray. I'm going to look for a new job. And so it was pretty dutiful to do that. I took my duty to work and provide seriously. Uh, it says in Thessalonians, if any man will not work, neither shall he eat. Timothy says that if a man does not provide for his own, he's denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. So this is all stuff that I thought. And then the general wisdom, you don't quit your job until you have another. But things intensified uh, in 2020. Our company went through a very large transaction. It was complex, it took a lot of hours, and it resulted in us confronting a hostile investor. But with this also came a large promotion for me. And so it was really a crisis where I wanted to believe I could make it work. Where in 30 years of this company, everyone else had failed, I could somehow make it happen. I could thread the needle of having that work-life balance of not letting the strain and intensity get to me and my kids and my family. One of my early mentors had taught me, it's easy to say no to a deal, it's hard to say yes. Find a way to say yes, which is good wisdom if you're doing a rational business transaction. But, um, but when, the, when the transaction isn't the deal isn't just between a contract or buying something, but it's more personal, it's not necessarily good wisdom. It felt to me like there was a bounty. Every Saturday, $1,000 is on the table. If you don't see your wife and kids today, you can have that money at the end of the day. Felt like at the end of the year, there was the coin flip. All right, you're gonna get your bonus, but heads, you might get divorced. Tails, she'll stick around for another year. And um, so in all that, it was my encounter with Jesus was through his word. And I'm gonna get emotional and I don't care, so. Uh, uh, 1 Kings 16.34 says, speaking of in the days of Ahab, in his days, Hale of Bethel built Jericho. He laid, laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. And so when it's speaking, laid its foundation with his son, whether that was sacrifice, human sacrifice or something else, the man who rebuilt Jericho did it at the cost of his family, quite literally. And it was very sobering for me. I thought, well, I'm in commercial real estate, so is this guy. It's not, it's the tragic thing of an investor being too aggressive in his underwriting and thinking he could pull it off on his own and it cost him his family. And I saw that that's what this was gonna cost me, that I could build something, I could be successful, I could have this opportunity and I was focused on the opportunity, but not the opportunity cost. 
And the opportunity cost is my relationship with my wife, my kids, my health. Most importantly, my relationship with God. And now I know work gets busy. We all have seasons. And this was my conviction. It doesn't have to be yours. Um, But this is what God spoke to me. And it was my general lack of faith. I didn't trust God on both the ends and the means. The ends in terms of if there's something good in my life, God is going to provide it for me. And the means that I don't have to do it on my own. So if God's not providing it, then I don't need it. And if he's going to do it, he's going to do it in his way. And so ultimately, I had to trust that he would provide. My responsibility is to love my wife, to love my kids, and to serve them, and not to sacrifice them on behalf of my own career and things like that. So I resolved that I would move on with or without a job. Uh, Fortunately enough, right around that time, which was two years ago, a job came up here in Costa Mesa. And things have happened since then, but largely in that case, the rest is history. But what it really spoke to me is that, one, the idol of career, but then two, trust in God, that he knows what I need, he'll provide, he'll provide for it. And he's done that with me and my family, um, but he had to take me to a spot where I really saw what was it going to cost me. And as I think Dave's going to speak about today again, that opportunity cost of all these good things, but what was I willing to give up to get them? So thank you very much. I'm back. Thank you for that, Connor. So good. Um, we are going to talk about today um, the opportunity costs uh, on, on a number of fronts. And um, we're looking at a passage, you know, Lent, the season of Lent began on Wednesday. Some of you are at the Ash Wednesday service. And uh, Lent is a season where we follow Jesus on his way to the cross and the resurrection. And this passage, I think, is a perfect passage to kick off the Lenten season. Um, Mark mentioned last week, Biola puts out a great uh, daily devotional for Lent, and he talked about that. Um, I also put out a really simple uh, Bible reading schedule through Lent, and all it is, it's it's a weekly scripture. So you only have one scripture a week on top of whatever else you do, where you're looking at that scripture maybe each day during the week, and I picked some, I think, some great passages that connect with the themes of Lent. And if, so if you want to do that, it's just one scripture a week. And then uh, on Easter week, Holy Week, there's daily readings through, through that. Um, so there's, a, there's some of them out, uh, out in the foyer uh, under the flat screen. You'll see you can pick some up there. Or it actually, that hit, these readings hit your, if you are part of our email blast on Thursdays, that hit your uh, inbox. And you can get it integrated with your iCal or your Google Cal that way. So if you want to do that and you don't know how to do that, just talk to me afterwards. I can, also, I can print one out for you. So I want you to let, let you know that. All right. So um, today, uh, the title is Jesus and Peter, Part 2. Um, we saw Part 1 at the Sea of Galilee. Um, this is part two, and just to let you know, later in this series, we're going to have part three, also back at the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection of Jesus. And um, I think this is one of the most important passages in the Gospels, uh, maybe especially for the American church or the Western church, churches uh, where comfort and affluence is, is prevalent, where we, it doesn't cost us Uh, to be Christians as well, um, though that might change over time, of course. But I think this is a really important passage. Uh, I'll just tell you, uh, this passage changed my life about 25 years ago. And last week I mentioned my own season of doubt in college, and it was actually this call here uh, 
and experiencing this passage in a very personal way that was my journey back to faith out of that season of doubt. And so I, I care a lot about this passage for personal reasons. And I'll also say, um, when you preach week in, week out, uh, you will always come across passages, some of which you feel like, I'm doing pretty well with that one, and others where you're like, I'm so far off from living that out, and you still have to preach it, <laughs> right? And uh, this is one of those passages. Even after 25 years of hearing this call, I'm spending time with this passage this week, and I'm feeling how profoundly inadequate my life has been in light of this call. And yet, I still have to come up here and preach it. And so I want to just be honest with you that I experience this week the deep inadequacy of my life as I look at a passage like this. And I think uh, this will trigger some of that for many of you as well. And so I, I want, uh, my, my prayer has been that somehow you would hear this call today spoken personally into your life, the way it was spoken in my life 25 years ago, that, that words on a paper that a man spoke 2,000 years ago to a crowd, that somehow you would believe there is a living person today who speaks through these words to you today. And he does that. And we all have had that, many of us have had that experience. It's like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize John wrote that verse for me, Right? But that's my prayer. That, and this, this is how it has to be for this to have any impact. You have to hear the call of Christ on your life in a, in a very personal way at some point in your life. And that's my prayer. And we can't force that. That's his decision. That's his action. And so I just, I'm preaching today more than usual with the awareness Jesus is in the room right now through his spirit. I'm entirely inadequate uh, to this passage. But he is here with the power to speak to his people and to minister and to convict and to invite and to comfort. And he gets to do that in his way uh, through this passage today. And so I'm, I'm excited, I'm honored uh, to, to, to look at this passage together. And uh, I hope it's helpful for you today. So uh, I hope it just moves us closer to Jesus. I mean, that's, that's what I hope happens. Uh, the, there's two parts to this passage. You have this um, interaction between uh, Jesus and Peter right, in verse 27 to uh, 33, and then in verse 34, you have Jesus' words to the crowds, and hopefully to us today as well. So let's look at both of those. Um, so first, let's look at this interaction between Jesus and, and Peter. I, I, I want us to try to get a sense of what would it have felt like to be Peter in this moment? Like, how would he have experienced this encounter with Jesus? And I was very aware this week, uh, this is a moment where you have, like, very different kingdoms colliding. You have like the God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, and the kingdoms of the world. And you have like worldviews in conflict. And they're, they're not even close to each other. They're so radically opposed and different in terms of their expectations and sensibilities. And I think Peter just gets caught right at the crutch, crunch of all that kingdom collision. And it's, it's an experience that's very disorienting for him, very uh, confusing. I mean, he, I think he's reeling after this conversation. You just kind of get caught in the crossfires of these kingdoms, which I think you'll see. Uh, so I think, you know, context, I think we're at about the height of Jesus' ministry at this point. He's been doing his public ministry for a while. He's been preaching. He's been healing people, casting out demons, performing miracles. 
And this is like a, a moment where he steps back with his disciples. And it's sort of a, let's, sort of a state of the union. Like, what, what, let's just step back. You've, people have seen me in action for a while. And he, he asks this question uh, in uh, verse 27, 27, who do people say I am? So, you know, what, what are people saying? People are seeing my ministry. What are they saying? And they, they give some answers. Uh, and then in verse 29, Jesus makes it personal to his disciples. But you... Who do you say I am? And that's a question that every human being has to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter, as he often does, speaks first, right? He speaks on behalf of his disciples, or of, of the disciples. Look at verse 29. Peter answers, you are the Messiah. This is a high point, let me suggest, in Peter's. He's saying, uh, we've been, no, it is. It's going to go low real fast. <laughs> But this is a high point, okay? You're the man. You're the Messiah. You're the long-awaited king. We've watched. We've seen. We've noticed. We know you. We've seen you. We've walked with you. And we have concluded you are, in fact, the Messiah. And in, in, in Matthew's version, Jesus responds with this great blessing over Peter. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. He says, Simon, that is a beautiful confession. And I'm telling you, God has given you that confession. God was at work in you, helping you to see that I truly am the Messiah. You are seeing me right. I am the Messiah. It's an essential that they understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay? Uh, and then the conversation takes, I think, what for Peter would feel like a very bizarre, very bizarre turn. Right? So, high moment. You are the man. Look what Jesus does next. Verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Okay, what? Well, you are Messiah. Why, why on earth would you want to keep that secret? And then he goes on to basically, now that they've got the category, the label Messiah right, like you are right, this is who I am, he starts filling that category with its true content. Verse 31, he goes on to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief, uh, chief priests and the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed, and then after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Okay, so um, I say this a lot. I use this phrase a lot. We have 2,000 years of hindsight, right? And I want to say that again. T today, like, 2,000 years later, we understand why Jesus came to what kind of Messiah he came to be, but nobody in the first century had any clue that that's what Messiah was going to do. They are expecting a coming king who is going to gain a following, which Jesus is doing at this time, who is going to possibly perform miracles, who is going to build a following, and who's going to defeat Israel's enemies, which are as Rome at the time, and probably possibly even uh, upturn, uh, overturn the, the corrupt leadership of the day, and set up a throne in Jerusalem and usher in a golden age in Israel's history. Okay, so for them, Messiah means power, it means uh, authority, it means honor, and Jesus has an utterly different category for Messiah. He has come to love and serve his people. And he recognizes the people's greatest enemy is not Rome. The people's greatest enemy is themselves. Right? Their own sin, 
which requires sacrifice, which it always requires sacrifice in Scripture. And so he has come to love and serve and pour himself out in humility and ultimately suffer and be handed over and die on a cross for the sins of the world. And only then will he rise in glory. Okay, So utterly outside of people's expectations. It's, it's, a, it's an utterly unworldly view of what a king should be. You with me? Okay. So um, I love, I love uh, verse 32, uh, the second half of Peter. Peter took him aside. I love that. Jesus, let me, let's, let's, let's I'm not going to do this in, in front of everybody. Let me just pull you aside. And, uh, and he began to rebuke him. So Peter is rebuking Jesus, right? Jesus, I rebuke what you just said. That, no, that is absolutely not what is going to happen to you. That is absolutely not what the Messiah is all about. I rebuke that. I'm going to do that privately for your sake, but let me help you out here, right? <laughs> uh, verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So he, he's watching, and he sees the disciples are watching this, and Jesus is like, we're going to make this a public moment, Peter, okay? And he rebukes Peter right back with these words, get behind me, Satan. Imagine Jesus looking you in the eye, and as he's looking you in the eye, saying, get behind me, Satan. And what I think Jesus hears in Peter's rebuke he hears the temptations of Satan. We looked at that encounter with Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning, right? Where Satan was like, you don't need to go this way of suffering and death. I've got a, I've got a way for you to be Messiah that's fast, cheap, and easy. And, and Jesus is hearing that same temptation again in Peter's words. And so he's calling that out. No, I'm, I'm done with that. I'm not going to do that way. And, and Peter is finding out, oh my gosh, I'm being, Satan is at work in me. You just told me that God had revealed that you're the Messiah. Now you're telling me Satan's at work in me, right? This is, this is very disorienting for him. Look at what Jesus goes on to say. Verse 33, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, you're not thinking the way God thinks. You're thinking the way that the world thinks. You're thinking the way that people think. And by the way, the way the world thinks apparently is similar to the way that Satan thinks. Like, well, <laughs> Peter's saying things that are entirely reasonable. But this is a bizarre thing for the Messiah to do. And Jesus is like, yeah, you, you are thinking, you're, you're not thinking in line with God's kingdom. God's kingdom is very different, and it works very differently than the world's kingdoms. And Peter's finding himself, like I said, at the, at the crunch of these two kingdoms. He's very, very confused, uh, very disorienting. Uh, it's really fascinating uh, what Mark does in his gospel here. What I could say is Peter is seeing, right? And yet he's not seeing. Like he's seeing clearly, he's seeing category, Messiah, you've got that right. And yet he's so not seeing what Messiah is supposed to be. Look at the passage just before this. It's interesting how the gospel writers put uh, stories together. In, in, in verse 20, uh, 22, you have this weird story of like a partial healing that Jesus does, where he heals a guy, sort of, so he can kind of see, and then he heals him fully so that he can fully see. Look at this. Uh, look at verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. 
He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked at him and said, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Like, I'm, I'm kind of seeing. Uh, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And I think Marcus put those two stories together because that's exactly what Jesus is doing with Peter. Peter is starting to see you are Messiah, and yet he has so much more to see. You have no idea what it means for me to be Messiah, this life of love and suffering and death for the sake of my people. And I think, I think that's actually a very interesting thought to think about. Like in, in the church today, I think as Christians, we can have sometimes the right categories for things, the right labels. Yeah, I, you know, I kind of have the right worldview, if I can say it that way, like I believe that Jesus is a Messiah. I believe salvation happens this way. Like if, you, if on the test we're getting the right answers, and yet we can be pretty far away in terms of how we live from the way that God's kingdom actually works. We can have the categories right, but still be operating by the ways of the world, ways of power or, or um, reputation or status or, or all the things that the world thinks are important. We can, we can have the labels right like Peter did, and yet he was so far from understanding how God's kingdom works. And I think especially in, in, in our context where the church uh, has experienced times of, of, um, of blessing and, and ease, that we can have, we can have the, the labels right and yet not actually be operating by the true ways that God's kingdom actually works. And so Peter, I think, is... is um, Utterly disoriented. Uh, it's going to take him a couple years to sort all this out, actually. And not till Jesus is raised from the dead that he's going to understand this. So that's the encounter with Peter. And then I want to turn, and this is really kind of where we'll land it today. Then look at the, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he's going to say something. So this, this moment, this encounter, this misunderstanding gives Jesus an opportunity. I'm going to bring everybody together, and I want, to, I want to make myself really clear. I want everybody to understand what this whole kingdom thing's about, what, what it is to follow me. And uh, these are the words that really hit me uh, 25 years ago. And here's what I want to talk about. He's going to talk about the call of discipleship and then the cost of discipleship. And then the cost of non-discipleship, okay? Let me just walk through this real briefly. Here he gives us the call of discipleship in verse 34. Take a look. Whoever wants to be my disciple, or literally, whoever wants to follow after me, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is the call of discipleship. And if you've never heard it, it's, this is a good day to be here. It's two simple words. Follow me. That is Jesus' call on every man and woman. Follow me. Notice, not just believe in me, not just trust me, though, though that's very much a part of it, but follow me. Walk with me. Live life with me and learn to walk the ways I walk. Be with me. Follow me. That is my call on you. Again, 25 years ago, those were the two words that changed my life. And we're going to look at three encounters with Peter, and it's really interesting. In all three encounters, those two words are right in the middle of them. 
First at the Sea of Galilee, follow me. Second here. And then third again at the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection, follow me. And Peter had already heard these words, right? He'd already heard these words at the Sea of Galilee. But now he's learning more what these words mean. Because Jesus has just told him, here's where I'm going. I'm giving you more information. Here's where I'm going. I'm going into a life of love and humility and service and pouring myself out. And that's going to result in a life of suffering and a life of being handed over and ultimate death and then resurrection. I told you, follow me at the Sea of Galilee. I'm telling it to you again now. Follow me. But now you know where I'm going. And so if you want to follow me, this is where you're going to. You're going to go into a life of love and service and pouring yourself out for God's kingdom. And there'll be suffering and possibly even death. And what struck me this week, and this is so obvious, but um, what struck me is the invitation is optional. (laughs) Like, I don't know why, but Jesus says, he starts this phrase, who, if you want, like whoever wants to follow after me, like if you want to follow me, meaning you don't have to do this. I'm not forcing anybody to follow me, right? I'm, I'm telling you, here's what it looks like. Here's the cost. Here's, here's what will happen if you don't, but nobody has to do this. Every person gets to decide whether they want to follow me or not. This is where I'm headed, and I leave that invitation open to you, and you get to choose. But here's my call. Follow me. And then he gives us, in that same sentence, what I'm calling the cost of discipleship. And we'll see it in two phrases in that same sentence, verse 34. Here's the cost. Whoever wants to be my disciple must, two two words, the first one is this, deny themselves. Okay? This is the cost to follow me. You have to deny yourself. That word, the original word means to say no to or to uh, give no regard to. It's interesting, in the Gospels later, Peter is going to deny Jesus, right? The night before Jesus dies, he's, Jesus is arrested, and people are come, come alongside Peter and say, hey, you, you're one of his followers. And you say, no, I don't know this man. I, I have nothing to do with this man. I, I, I claim no allegiance to Jesus. I deny this person. And Jesus is saying here, that's actually what you need to do with yourself. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to say no to yourself often, you're going to have to say, I have no regard. I have no regard for this person. I'm just following Jesus. I'm saying no to this. I'm, I'm not really thinking about this. I'm thinking about that. That's, that's one of the costs. You have to deny yourself. And then you have this other phrase in verse 34, famous phrase, let them deny themselves and take up your cross. Now, this is the other cost. You have to take up your cross. And I want you to right now imagine a person actually carrying a cross, walking with a cross on their shoulders. And Jesus had to do this, right? They actually made him carry his cross on the way to his crucifixion. Now, what is that image meant to convey to us? I heard it, death, right? In the first century, nobody's wearing crosses as necklaces, right? There's no buildings with crosses on them. There's no t-shirts that have crosses. There's absolutely no religious or spiritual association with crosses at all. To a first century person, a cross is what Rome uses to execute criminals. That's the only thing it is. If Jesus were alive in 18th century France, he would have said, if you want to follow me, you know, you got to put your head in that guillotine until they cut the rope, right? It's, it's an image, you, it's a death image. You, you have to die 
Um, but I'm asking you to, to die daily. To, in fact, in Luke's gospel, he says, take up your cross daily. Every day, you have to die to yourself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous line, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Okay, that one hit me 25 years ago. Um, so by deny yourself, what I mean by that, I'm talking about a denial that feels like death. You just said to this, I've died to my agenda, my desires, my wealth, my reputation, my safety, my comfort, uh, my, you name it. The, by deny, I mean die. <laughs> Surrender. And keep on surrendering it. I was this sort of an aside, but I was thinking this week how many times it feels like Jesus actually discourages people from following him. <laughs> like there's multiple times in the Gospels where someone's like, I want to follow you. And he's like, well, here's what it would mean. And the people walk away and like, oh, I'm not, gonna, I'm not up for that. Like, are you trying to keep people from following you, Jesus? Um, which is so different from how we do it in the church today, right? I mean, it's just such a different, different strategy. Um, and I, just to be clear, denial and death are not the goal. Jesus is not leading a movement of denial and death. The goal is follow me. That's what I want. I want you to follow me. A along that path, you're going to have to deny yourself, and it's going to feel like death at times. And it might actually mean death at times, as, as it did for some of these men. Right? But, but the goal is follow me. And I was thinking this week of those disciples present and what following Jesus meant. And it did mean the loss. There were costs, right? They left their nets. They left their, left their jobs. They left their spouses for a time, many of them. Uh, they left, or they lost um, the comfort of their lives, the control and predictability of their lives. Uh, they ended up losing their reputation. Uh, they ultimately ended up losing their safety and even their lives. Right, this is what it cost them. And um, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I, I hear this, like, rad, this radical call and what it costs these guys, and it, it's hard to like, make it relatable to our lives today. Like, it just feels so radical. I don't even know where to start. And what I remind you of is since we last met last Sunday, each one of us has had multiple opportunities to do this, right? to deny ourselves, to engage in a small death to self in order to follow Jesus. I mean, it could be as simple as, I'm going to deny my desire for 15 more minutes of sleep so that I can wake up and spend my first 15 minutes with Jesus before my kids wake me up. I mean, that's a small denial for Jesus. Or it could be, um, my spouse really wants to have a conversation right now that I don't want to have. And uh, I'm going to deny my desire to not have this conversation and listen. Or we, I'm going to fight with a roommate or a friend. And I'm going to deny my pride, and I'm going to apologize. I'm going to a small death. We, we have opportunities every day to practice this. But there's a cost, and, and Jesus is um, right up front about this. I want you to know right up front, there's a cost. Uh, but then he ends, and this is where things either get better or worse. I don't know how you'll feel about this. Um, with the cost of non-discipleship. Okay, there's, I want you to follow me, and I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right from, there is, a, there is a cost to following me. But let me also lay out clearly the cost of not following me. And what he does in these next four verses or so is he broadens our perspective out to eternity. 
He gets us outside of the 50 to 80 or whatever many years we get to live here. And he says, let me just pull this out and I want you to feel the eternal scope of your existence. Okay? And here's what he says. Let me just talk it through. I'm not going to explain too much here. I think it speaks for itself. Verse 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Okay? Your life, or your translation might say your soul. That You, us. Jesus said, you know that, that thing that you want to save, that you want to keep safe? The thing that makes you afraid to follow me because you're afraid you might lose it if you follow me, and so you want to preserve it and keep it safe and build it up and protect it, and that could be your it plays out in your reputation or your standard of living uh, or uh, your comforts or you name it, your, your agendas, th- those things that you so desperately want to keep safe. If you live your life that way, saying, I'm not going to go after this guy and follow him because I want to pr- protect this, that very thing that you are so desperate to protect, you will lose for eternity. You can protect it for however many years you hear, maybe you can, maybe you can't, but you will lose it. There's eternal consequences to the decisions you make today. And ironically, if you're willing to just go, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to, that thing I want to protect, I'm just going to pour it out. I'm just going to follow and pour it out, and just whatever, whatever happens, happens. I'm following after this guy. The thing that you thought you just gave up, you will preserve for eternity, eternal life with Jesus. And then he goes on to say, like, think about the relative worth of those two things. Look at this, verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I wonder if we thought about, like, okay, here's here's your option. Option one, you can have the best life ever for the rest of your life here on earth. You can... Anything you possibly want, you can have, and you forfeit your soul for all eternity. Would you take that? Or would you take, I, I, I got no guarantees for the next 30 years. I'm going to follow Jesus with no guarantees of safety, comfort, reputation, wealth, any of that, and gain your soul for all eternity? Would anybody choose this over this? Think about the opportunity costs, as Connor mentioned it, the cost of non-discipleship. And then Jesus ends with what I think is one of the, I'll just say it, one of the heaviest statements he makes in the Gospels. Verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, and this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, that's him, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. He's saying, like, think about the people you care about. Who's, who are the people that you want a good reputation with? Here's your options. The people of this world, he calls them this wicked and adulterous generation, broken, sinful people that are not going the ways of the kingdom. You could care deeply. You don't want to be, you don't want to be embarrassed by them because of your association with me. That's an option. Let me give you another group of people. I'm going to come again. I'm going to return at the end of time, and I'm coming in my Father's glory with the heavenly angels. That's a company of people as well. And do you want to be ashamed here or do you want to be ashamed here? Those are heavy words. And I, this is Jesus speaking these words. 
All that to say, follow me. There are real costs to following me. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Uh, and there's some real costs to not following me. And guess what? You don't have to follow me. Every human being gets to make that decision for themselves. The call goes out. And I want you to hear it clearly. And this is it. Follow me. Are you feeling the weight of that, those words? Okay. Let, let me, I, I want to end, I want to end, it's funny, um, Drew and I were talking about this this week. Um, I want to end on how, how, this, how these words sit differently with me than they did 25 years ago when I first heard them. And um, what Drew and I were talking about, I think we hear this and we're like, um, so I need to sell my house and move to Africa and become a missionary, right? Like this is, this is something that we all, I don't know, if you feel this, the weight of this, that, that is like a, I, that's a natural kind of response that we can often have. We, we see this. And, and the way this has changed for me in the last 25 years, when I first heard this, uh, I heard the radical call of it. And, and I felt very compelled to a, to a life with Christ that was dramatic uh, and, and radical and spectacular and extraordinary. You know, when you're like 20 years old, there's plenty of fleshly ambition all built into my spiritual life with God. And like, God, I'm going to go out and sacrifice for you, Jesus. I'm going to go after this. And um, and all that, but what it did, it actually created this kind of this engine inside of me that was this striving, driving. I've got to like, I've got to be worthy of this, and I've got to do this in a way that's going to be awesome, you know. And um, and I think the, some of us go, we'll look at this and we go, I look at my life and it's so not this. So I guess I got to sell the house and move to Africa. And we kind of like, well, I know I'm not going to do that, and so. We just stop there and we just end the conversation. Like we create the most radical version of this and we go, I, I know that's not possible, but it's actually a very self-protective thing to do. Like, well, I'm never going to do this, so I guess I don't have to do anything because that, if that's off the table, I'm not going to do anything. And so both of those are, are ways we can go. And I'll just tell you how this has changed for me. Um, I now hear this call in much simpler, ordinary, unextraordinary mundane ways. Um, to, to, to take this call, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start with my life how it actually is. I'm going to take my current job, my current spouse, my current kids, my current house, my current life, my current, current friends, and I'm going to start in simple ways going, Jesus, I want to follow you today. This is just today. This Sunday, you know, February 26th. I want to follow you for the rest of the day. So would you would you open my eyes today? Like, help me see my friends the way that you see them. Help me to start to see the people around me, how you would see them. Help me to see uh, my responsibilities and the, the activities I'm going to engage in through your eyes, with your kingdom sensibilities. And help me ask, like, Jesus, what would, what would you have me do in this moment? Like, what would bring you joy? How can I follow your way in this moment? And then what if I just did it? Like, and not worry about what's this going to cost me. It might cost me energy. It might cost me some money. It might cost me some pride. It might cost me my agenda. But just simple things. How can I love this person? I'm just going to do it. And if it costs me something, that's fine. I'm not even going to worry about that. But these little things. And what it's done is um, that churning that I, I had as a young 20-year-old has quieted. 
And, and I'm learning, like, I think actually um, the first move of the day is not like, how can I get into this radical life of surrender? Actually, the first move of the day is just surrender. <laughs> it's just, it's an action exhale. It's a, I've got all these, I wake up and there's all these, there's all this agenda going on in my mind. And I think the first move of the day is actually a quieting of all that. Like, I'm going to just release this, Lord, to you. Um, I have things I want to happen today. I have ways I want people to see me today. I have things, ways I want to perform today. I, want, I have things that I'm hoping will bring me comfort today. And I'm going to just start the day by going, none of that needs to happen. None of it needs to happen. I want you. I want to follow you today. And um, so I, the, the, the start of the day is, is, is actually, it's release. It's not, ah, here we go. <sighs> your agenda, Lord. Your, your whatever you want. I die. I surrender. I abandon my attempts to make something of myself. I, I'm going to read you just the start of a little, um, I read this to our worship team this morning. I'll, I'm ending here. Um, this is this little liturgical prayer called for first waking. And I love how this starts. It starts this way. I am not the captain of my own destiny, nor even of this new day. And so I renounce anew all claim to my own life and desires. I am only yours, O Lord. Lead me by your mercies through these hours that I might spend them well, not in harried pursuit of my own agendas, but rather in good service to you. And it ends this way. In all things, your grace will sustain me. Bid me follow and I will follow. And I was thinking to end that, that last verse, Jesus talks about the p- kinds of people he's going to honor when he returns, right? The people that will experience shame and the people that experience honor. And I suspect that when Christ returns, the people that he's going to honor most are actually not like the Chris- Christian celebrities of the day who are you know, doing all this radical, awesome, influential ministry. I suspect the kinds of people that Jesus will honor are, honor are these very simple men and women who serve those around them in ways that were unseen, that were humble, that were sacrificial, but that largely went under the radar. Those seem to be the kinds of people that Jesus is like, well done good and faithful servant. And so that's, I think, we, this is within all of our grasps. Follow me. Follow me. Amen. Let's pray. Why don't we take a minute just to sit with those words, those two words. And I'm just going to create silence. And you can just sit with those words and, and maybe prayerfully with Jesus consider what would it mean for me to answer those two words this week, today? Lord, how can I follow you? What do I need to let go of so that I can follow you?